Hello, welcome back to the Masonic Roundtable, a weekly program where Masons from around the world get together to talk about Masonic news and opinions in a friendly and social manner. As a reminder, the thoughts and opinions expressed here are solely the opinions of the participants and do not represent any Grand Lodge statements or positions. Make sure you keep the conversations open for the public and on the level. To interact with us, as always, you can send questions or comments to our Facebook page or to our YouTube channel. Love seeing all those come up in real time. It's a good good community that's grown over the years. So let's see. You know me. My name is John Ruark. I'm a past master of the Patriot Lodge, number 1957, in Fairfax, Virginia. Next up for his introduction, we'll do Jason Richards. Hello and good evening, Jason. Hey, good evening. Jason Richards here, past master of Vacation Lodge number 16 in Clifton, Virginia, and member of the Colonial Lodge number 1821 in Washington, D.C., and Lafayette Lodge number 79 in Zanesville, Ohio. Good to have you. Next up for his introduction, Joe Martinez. Hey, Joe. Better to be had than viewed. Hey, oh. I've had, I've had you. Hello, Joe Martinez. Hi. <laughs> My but name. everybody needs um, to know that I was Big Spoon. Nice hat. Yes, you're always Big Spoon. Uh, yeah, Joe Martinez, let's see. Uh, you're number two as uh, Master of Manassas Lodge number 182, member of BBF number 15 in the District of Columbia, Ezekiel Bates Lodge in Attleboro, Mass., and uh, Harmon Lodge 420 in uh, Greensboro. I'm sorry, in um, Yadkinsville, North Carolina. And uh, yeah, super pumped to be here. Do you get like a discount if you get like punch a hole in all the jurisdictions? If you can get you do not you collect you them all. What, <clears throat> the more jurisdictions you're a member of, the more people there are to yell at you. So, ah, yeah. So it's the opposite effect. Got it. You don't get a free sub. All right. And last but not least for tonight, tonight's special guest host. You become the free sub for a bunch of doms. <laughs> we have Taylor Nauta. How's it going, Taylor? <laughs> going great. Thanks for having me. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, I'm a past master of New River Lodge 402 in Gonzales, Louisiana. Thanks. And past presiding officer of a handful of other bodies. So worshipful. Thanks for coming on. And uh, sliding in, we have Robert Johnson. Good evening, Robert. Oh my gosh, what's up everybody? Uh, Robert Johnson, past master Waukegan 78, and uh, sitting secretary at the uh, Premier Education Lodge in the Grand Jurisdiction of Illinois called space novum 1183 good to be with you guys sorry i'm late not a problem good to have you so uh hey look at this full house tonight um i want to give a special shout out to the patrons who've been supporting the show you guys are awesome and rock my socks so if you want to support the show into 2023 head over to patreon.com slash the masonic roundtable and chip in a few bucks join our little uh Facebook group that always has uh, an interesting, curious question of the week that pops up. So um, good times to be had by all into the new year. Make it a New Year's resolution because all the cool <laughs> kids do. Give us money. <laughs> new Year's resolution. Yes. No, not like that. It, at all. If you give us money, we'll buy Robert a Santa hat for next year. Boom. He, did, he didn't get the memo. Yeah, I wouldn't. I wouldn't wear it. You wouldn't do it. <laughs> Take a dump for that. <laughs> so anyway, we will we will gift him Joe's elf hat. I tell you what, Ooh. if you get me a hat that's got Mothman on it, we'll talk. Mm. Interesting. What if it's a Christmas hat that also features Mothman? Oh, I'm all in. <laughs> okay. All right, well, Jason. Going to zazzle.com. Zazzle <laughs> 
Uh, Jason, let's uh, hand it over to you for the final tarot card of the week for this year for TMR. This year? Oh, my goodness. So um, tonight we are doing our tarot card of the week from my favorite deck, which is the Mystic Mondays Tarot by uh, Grace Dong. Um, Really, really awesome, shiny, sparkly deck. And uh, just love the artistry in the cards. And so without further ado, our card tonight is the Princess of Cups inverted. All right, so is that like the the page of cups and other yes rider mm-hmm. deck? So we have the, you have the the princess, the knight, you know, yep. the the king and the queen. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So cups are about emotion. We have the usually a page of of cups in like the the rider weight deck that I like is the, the the dude holding the cup of fish. The fish pop is popping out of the cup. Um, so that's like new love. That's like you know, excited about a new, a new opportunity, a new gig, a new job. Right. So here we go. We're coming up to a new year. So, um, but it's inverted, but it's inverted, but it's reversed. It's reversed. It's not inverted. (laughs) So like, what are you doing to block yourself Mm. from your intuition and your new stuff? Getting in your head, getting all in your head. And you're super insecure. It's a lot of insecurity, anxiety, I, yeah. I often wonder, uh, you know, just in the iconography and when this kind of came out and Pamela Coleman Smith, you know, mm-hmm. originally did these designs and put a fish in the cup. I wonder if uh, the fish for them was like relative to like the age of Aquarius and like the changing. And that's why she used a fish in the cup. I mean, like, you know, if she had lived way later or something, would we would we see, you know, a different uh, uh, zodiacal sign or animal mm-hmm. in the cup? That's interesting. I'm just curious. Yeah. So, yeah. in the um, <gasps> really cool oh. tarot reversals book, a complete that I have book of tarot. Reversals. Yeah, it says the page or princess of cups reversed <clears throat> can be afraid of and resist love, or deny her or his emotional vulnerability. Playing hard to get. Sometimes it indicates a loss of innocence and trust. On the other hand, it could signify being sexually experienced boy slash girl crazy or needing constant reassurance that you are loved <laughs> tell me you love me but perhaps do you, you love exagger- me perhaps you exaggerate foppish mannerisms or are dressed up when everyone else is in jeans <laughs> who knows All right. foppish that is, that is a word I have not heard in a while <laughs> what like, say you Taylor I don't know. How do you how do you I'm interpret not sure that? Make that. <laughs> I think that's one of those things where you can make it mean whatever you want it to mean, you know? Mm-hmm. Um so I I haven't I'll be honest and say I haven't delved much into tarot. I, I've gone through the Rider Waite deck several times. I, I have one. Uh there's a book I've read called Meditations on the Tarot. Mm-hmm. I forget who authored that. And that was very thought provoking. It was kind of tarot from a, a hermetic Christian standpoint, kind of looking right. through that lens, and very interesting. Um, not convinced how sold I am on on all all of it. Well, it's a lens, right? Yes, I like that's a it's good. It's a lens to view your current situation and 
you know, it's it's at one of, you know, 78 different perspectives you could have on what's going on. Right. Sure. Yeah. I like that. I kind of think that that's what it's about. It's, you know, it's a symbolism. It's a means of kind of getting you to take a step back and just sort of be an observer of yourself and your thoughts and your feelings and your situation, um, maybe in a way that you otherwise wouldn't. And that, mm-hmm. At the very least, it's got that value going for it. There you go. All right. Well, um, but, uh, I'm certainly glad that you're here, Taylor, because uh, if you've been active on uh, the Winding Stairs Facebook group uh, recently, Taylor's been dropping knowledge bombs ever so slightly, <laughs> stirring the pot in a good way, because uh, he's he's a, a good intellectualist who likes to say what he means and means what he says. And uh, it was a good good thing to pull him on. And I said, Taylor, what, what do you want to talk about? Because uh, you're a smart dude and, and a, a well, well-respected scholar in the Masonic community. And to which he's, he replied, hey, why don't we talk about Masonic exegesis? And, you know, how do you actually trace the source and, and find what the authors really mean in the Masonic ritual and other texts? So kick us off, Taylor. What do you mean by Masonic exegesis in that, that context? Well, let's get, let's get right into it. Yeah. Um, I, and the reason why I picked it, when you, when you kind of reached out to me and said, what do you want to talk about? I'm like, well, if I get to talk about anything I want to talk about, and let's talk about what I perceive to be one of the biggest problems in our fraternity right now. Boom. Uh, and that's that you have a lot of, you got a lot of guys that are coming into our fraternity because they're looking for meaning. Um, but one of the big problems is that they don't know where to look for it or how to look for it. And there isn't a lot of good instruction heading their way to give them any good direction in that. You know, the old guard, a lot of those guys, if you ask them what any symbols and allegories and legends in masonry whether you're talking about in the blue lodge or capitular or cryptic degrees or scottish rite degrees or whatever you ask the old guys what any of this stuff means and they just kind of shrug oh i I don't know you know as if they hadn't even thought about it uh or they may give you some personal interpretation of theirs that is strictly their own um you know but there's not a lot of these young guys coming into the craft today are not being given a lot of good, solid direction on how they can investigate the meaning of masonry in a competent, intelligent way. And because of that, especially in the York tradition, and when I say the York tradition, I include the Blue Lodge in that. Um, but that that particular part of masonry is pretty vague in its explanation of symbolism and whatnot. Its lectures leave much to be desired uh, in the way that certain things are explained. And you're like, okay, I know there's more to this than that. It's hinting at something deeper, but where do you look? And you're forced to kind of go outside of the craft. You're forced to go outside of your monitor, outside of your ritual, um, to kind of chase those streams to their headwaters and figure out what's being said here. You know, um, the Scottish Rite's a lot clearer, a lot more coherent, at least the southern jurisdiction is, on what it's getting at. And it's pedagogical. It's a structure that each degree is preparing you for the next one and preparing you for the next one, and it's culminating all in this holy doctrine, royal secret idea. And it's a very specific idea. Um, But the Blue Lodge is kind of, you know, you think about it, all of you guys, the average Master Mason you meet, how good of a clear idea does he have of what masonry is about? And if you were to take a hundred master masons in your jurisdiction and ask them all, 
you're not going to get a very uniform response. Chances are a lot of them haven't even given it any thought. Um, you know, and those few that have given it thought probably thinking in all kinds of different directions. And that's because they don't have any sort of method um, that they're using to explore meaning and to derive meaning. So the word exegesis, what it means is to get meaning out of something. It's to look at a text or a set of symbols, um, especially a text, you know, something allegorical or symbolic in any way. You take a parable, for example, um, and exegesis is, is the act of interpreting it and seeing what's there, what's in it, what was intended to be seen, you know, whereas I think of a lot of what we see in masonry is eisegesis, you know, and a lot of the so-called esoteric masons especially are guilty of it, though well-meaning, they tend to see what they want to see and they superimpose their own kind of whimsical ideas onto masonry. A hundred percent. Yeah, that's, yeah. that's the thing that, uh, you know, led me to be more education focused over my Masonic career was again, I, I had that same experience you mentioned earlier about wanting to share something that you found with esteemed past masters who really don't think about what's beyond the words that they learn in, in the ritual. And then yeah. when you go deeper down the rabbit hole, there's, there's more to it. Well, there's a ton to it. It's very profound stuff. Um, masonry does have something to say. And I, I've come to believe that it's something pretty specific and that you, you can, you, you can arrive at that with a bit of a method, you know? Um, and it's, well, simply when you're, when you're trying to figure out what somebody's trying to say, let's say an author of an ancient text or an, any text for that matter, especially if they're writing in a kind of a symbolic language that's not, that's deliberately not meant to be just face value plain parables and allegories are designed to make you think they're designed to be puzzles they're designed to puzzle you you know and to make you kind of wrestle with it uh they're kind of made to unsettle you they're question extractors is what they are you know every little piece Ooh, of it's like a that. signpost is it? and it's made for you to go why is that there why is that specifically said that way and why is this thing positioned in this room in that way you know uh all of that stuff, everything in masonry is a question extractor, right? But whoever put this stuff together, right? Whoever wrote any parable or allegory has an, had an intention. They had an audience. And they also had a, a historical socio-political matrix that inspired them to do that. At that they time, had a, a world mm -hmm. they were living in that gave context to their ideas and thoughts. And um, that created a climate. Huh? Is that context? Yes. Yes, absolutely. You know, so, you yeah, know, kind of getting right to the meat of it, you think about what, what was the socio-political climate that masonry was born into? What was the world like mm -hmm. when masonry was born? You think about the earliest speculative Freemasons that we know about. You have Sir Robert Moray, who was initiated in 1642. You had Elias Ashmole, who was initiated in 1646. Now, chances are those were not the first two speculative Masons. They're just the first two that we have written evidence of. There were probably some others, and even earlier in the 1600s, maybe even in the late 1500s, initiated into some of these trade guilds. But you have to ask yourself, what was the world like back then? In the early 1600s, late 1500s in England, Scotland, France, just throughout Europe altogether. What was it like? You know, uh, too many American Masons, especially, they like to 
think about masonry purely in the in the context of southern Mississippi or Louisiana, <laughs> 2021. Right. I don't. <laughs> Especially Joe. Yes, very much so. Oh, to put bit. some of this in context, you think about what was happening in the late 1500s. William Tyndale, the British linguist, English linguist, was in the mid, mid-1500s was burned at the stake merely for translating a Bible into English by the Church of England, you know, uh, basically condemned for translating the Bible to English. Uh, that got him killed. Uh, in the year 1600, Giordano Bruno was burned at the stake in Rome for having ideas that weren't exactly in line with the popular ideas in vogue with Rome, uh, with the Vatican, you know. Uh, the magisterium didn't appreciate his philosophies, and he got barbecued for it. That was the the kind of the status quo of the time, right? Uh, in the early, in 1614, 1615, uh, you had uh, Valentinus Andre, probably him, and maybe he had some help, puts out these mysterious Rosicrucian manifestos in Germany. Uh, kind of allegorical writings that sort of condemn fundamentalism in its day. Uh, and it created a, a big stir, caused a huge splash, a great upheaval. Um, you probably mean Francis Bacon, though. Too. Yeah. Yeah, Francis Bacon, too. <laughs> look, you look at all this stuff. You look at the world. It was a world where there was much religious tension. There was not freedom of speech. There was not freedom of thought. There was not freedom of conscience. You weren't just free to get up on a soapbox and talk about whatever ideas you have you know you were not you weren't even safe to read and study the bible for yourself openly in that era yeah, that's true right and you're at the end of the superstitious uh, renaissance time period very mystical whimsical renaissance time period but uh and then you're and you're also at the beginning the dawn of the enlightenment and the, an age of reason and an age of uh, pretty intense skepticism and uh, you have this tug of war between protestants catholics and uh, but now also kind of an atheist agnostic movement beginning to happen. You have Catholics killing Protestants, Protestants killing Catholics, and Protestants and Catholics alike killing atheists. And um, I think Masonry kind of emerges on the scene as a, a voice of reason, whereas to say that fundamentalism is a kind of fanaticism, and it's not the way to go about things. But at the same time, uh, atheism is a similar kind of arrogant uh, insistence upon a infallible certainty. You know what I mean? Uh, it's masonry kind of comes on as this middle middle way between radical extremes that were going on at the time and saying, hey, there's a way to believe in God. There's a way to take religion seriously without mm -hmm. taking religious stories and symbols too literally. And um, there's a way to balance faith with reason. There's a, and so on and so forth, you know, yeah. that you don't need to throw the baby out with the bathwater. And that's mm -hmm. kind of like the, the, the low-key message of masonry. Uh, and why it was so important when it came out. And you think, why are guys like Elias Ashmole, why are those scholarly guys interested in in throwing their, you know, and joining in with tradesmen in the first place? What did they see as a potential in that corpus of symbolism that the stoneworkers had? What did they see of value in their little symbols and in whatever simple rituals they may have had to initiate somebody in the guild? I think that they saw it as a means of uh, concealing deeper philosophical ideas. Mm -hmm. Dangerous to talk about 
mystical Christianity or figurative Christianity mm-hmm. in a world where if you didn't interpret things literally and exactly the precise way, it'd get you burned at the stake. Yeah, Joe, what do you uh, think? Yeah, so I was I was actually uh, wanted to pull that thread a little bit more with you, Taylor, going back to uh, young guys joining today. Um, and while you were talking, it had me thinking. So there's a big difference between the Masons of early speculative craft and the guys who joined today, right? And and you brought up the old mm. guard, and, and that's a perfect segue into, you know, you go back one or two generations, you had guys that were joining for a hundred different reasons, right? Going back to your analogy of you talk to a hundred guys, ask them why they joined. Well, I wanted to be with my buddies, or I like to go drinking, or this is a social club, or I just like to get away from my wife and kids, or you get all hundred reasons, but the very minority of of reasons end up being, well, I joined to learn more about myself or to understand my relationship with my creator, that kind of thing. To your point, sure. I think I think what we're seeing in today's you know declining membership, which we talked about a week or two ago, um, or refining membership, is that the younger guys that are coming in or the newer Masons, I don't want to say younger guys because I'm meeting 50 and 60 and 70 year olds that are deep as the ocean. Young to the craft. Young to the craft. Um, There is, at least in my experience, there's been a more focused desire to come and join Freemasonry for, I think, the reasons it was originally intended more so than uh, the the social benefits or the charitable aspects or things like that, which are all byproducts Mm -hmm. of what what continental freemasonry has become but you know to your point we we have people joining nowadays that are, are hearkening back to that original purpose right that that merging of faith and reason and knowing that they're not polar opposites they can sit together in a room um absolutely which i think is yeah, I think so. we have nobody that tells these young guys what to do and what do they do they flail around they read weird books or books we wouldn't recommend, and then, uh, or they just after a year or two, what do they do? They get bored and they leave. Yeah, what well, they and get they somebody recommends them Manly Hall or hey. Born in Blood or something like that. You yeah, know? And, okay. Born in Blood. Uh, I'll, I'll, and the, you I'll know, agree with you on that one. Yeah, and a lot of that stuff, man. It's like so many of these guys they get hung up on the idea that masonry has to truly be ancient in order to be awesome. You know, in order to be worth your time and attention, it doesn't. Something doesn't have to harken back to the Eleusinian mysteries in order to be worth your time. Something doesn't have to be ancient Egyptian in order to be worth your time. Huh? Doesn't hurt. Said it doesn't I mean, hurt. it'd be oh, cool, no. but you know, um, so likewise, something but doesn't have to stuff be. Stuff there you know, that isn't there. Yeah. Yeah. There, there needn't be a Templar connection for what Masonry has to say to be true, right? Yeah. What Masonry is trying to tell you about Whoa. yourself and about the divine human relationship and about the nature but of Taylor. God and the nature of man's relationship to God, that there doesn't need to be a Templar connection in order for what but Masonry Taylor, has to say need to that be profound. Connection. They yeah. need the Templar connection, Taylor, because otherwise it it's just not a an institution for which they can, you know, latch on to with fundamentalism. I don't, huh. Right. It's where they derive their sense of self-importance, and they they feel real special about that connection that doesn't exist. It's, well, well um, that's actually the point, right? Because it's like, how do I well, feel about masonry instead of what uh, masonry actually is on the on the literal page, Joe? Uh, yeah, but Robert yeah. jokingly says something which is kind of systemic in our craft, right? Mm-hmm. Especially depending on where you live, which is people try to identify certain parts of Freemasonry with 
the justification of their own opinions and ideas, mm-hmm. right? Uh, you know, and and that gets into some really crappy territory, right? It gets into bigotry. It gets into fundamentalism. It gets into quasi-evangelical aspects of turning Freemasonry Absolutely. into a place to proselytize, right? So, which is that's. Not I think Masonry to- is at its inception an anti, one of the earliest anti-fundamentalist institutions in a way. Like Masonry is one of the earliest, first liberal classically liberal and anti-fundamentalist institutions. well you just made it's you made uh, much, rj happy saying that i mean that's it's what it is you know uh, we're, what do we do we take a man by the hand and gradually lead him figuratively and literally right on an inward path of introspection to where he should have a series of, of epiphanies about himself about the nature of reality about the nature of his relationship and his kinship to his fellow man under the fatherhood of this one great mystery we call God that is really beyond our comprehension. It's like Masonry is trying to take everybody and help them to realize that the finite human comprehension can't wrap around and can't comprehend the infinitude of God. All the human mind is capable of knowing is limitation. So, you know, finite limitation and an infinite limitless God is just, well, it's, it's in, it's inconceivable and it's ineffable. Yeah. So any notion of a, of doctrinal infallibility and, and impossible certainty regarding such a being to the point where you think you have a monopoly on the truth to the extent that you'll persecute somebody else from a difference of opinion is truly insanity, dangerous insanity. (laughs) And fundamentalism for that reason is a kind of fanaticism. And that's kind of like Masonry 101. It's what, uh, you know, the whole, why we're given a substitute, right? Mm-hmm. What's the only substitute for certainty? It's faith, you know. Mm-hmm. That thing we're seeking is, that thing that is lost is a, a kind of certainty in its uh, completeness that's always a little bit beyond your grasp. But, you know, by no, I like that. So, so you, you, you mentioned a, a really good point when you started setting things up here, where you talked about the, um, that you have to, Consider the context in which the Masonic ritual is written and this, these, you know, our founding fathers of, of, of Freemasonry. And so I'm going to assume that you kind of have a, a method in which to do your exegesis because, um, because yeah. I know I do about how do I take something that I learned from ritual. I just don't start like applying it to how I exercise at the gym or how I drive to work. Like there's, I I have to like break it down to like, where did this come from and why? So kind of, could you walk through at least what goes through your mind about how you, when you first hear or or consider a, a Masonic text or quote or, you know, inspiration, how do you then walk through that mental model of finding out where it really came from? Yeah. So you think about, Okay. Well, first of all, I I was kind of touching on it already about the time period. I think about when did this start, right? What time period did this emerge and what was the world like? So, you know, in its inception, masonry only had a couple of degrees. You know, Fellowcraft was the highest, but a master mason degree didn't exist until about 1725 at the earliest, right? Uh, Scotch master, first degree above the, that came in around 1730. So it's not like Masonry has been this static thing. That's another mistake too. A lot of people seem to be under the assumption that Freemasonry has existed like it is now. There are no innovations in Masonry. Time immemorial. Come on. <laughs> you know. But the landmark. But the landmark. The landmark. The ancient which landmarks ones? which didn't exist until Mackey. <laughs> yeah. The ancient 
you know, landmarks from the 1700s. But, um, <laughs> yeah, so we, uh, well, so anyway, I start, I look back at the history. I look back at what, what the world was like in the place where this kind of first came on the scene. And I think to myself, what would it have been like for a person in those days experiencing these things and hearing these things being spoken? You know, um, some of the things that happen to you in a ritual and the things that you hear about uh, that that are, you hear spoken and see done in Masonic ritual today that might not be all that impactful or not as impactful as it would have been to somebody in the mid 1640s, you know, or even the early 1700s. Um, you know, some of the implications were a lot weightier, you know, the the whole notion, you know, and of course, masonry wasn't such a universalist thing until the Act of Union in 1813 or whatever. But you think about even even the idea, just the just the simple idea of a universal brotherhood of man under the fatherhood of God. Like we can all kind of we live in a world now where we're like, oh, yeah, toleration, kind of pluralism, democracy, it's not all a, that. It's not even controversial, really, right. you know, so much. But back then it really, really was. Um you know, so the whole, the fact that masonry is harping on this so much keeps circling back to this idea that God is something bigger. This idea that you have to climb this winding staircase to reach a higher summit uh, and a knowledge of God and keep on trying to deeper and, and deepen and deepen and deepen that that knowledge and understanding. This idea that you're ser searching for something that's lost. You're always in search of more light. This idea that you never have it all, right? It's it's kind of, it's hinting at something big here. And I don't know about y'all's jurisdictions, but I collect monitors. And in most of the monitors I've read, there's some kind of lecture in the under apprentice degree that introduces the idea that the temple uh, is a representation of you. And even in the earliest monitors mm -hmm. I've been able to find, there's right. something about the temple on a micro level, at least, represents you. And on a macro level, represents the world and the whole of creation or society humanity as a whole right and that's the temple you're building you're building a better you you're building the utmost uh idyllic virtuous chivalric chivalric you that you can build and you're and you're also trying to build the best society that you can build for humanity so far as your scope of influence is capable right and that's what we're building uh, and that's one of the major themes in masonry that gives it its whole lifeblood and context is this allegorical endeavor to build the temple that is you, that is also the world. Um, and then the other big theme is the search for the word, the search for the logos or the inherent wisdom and intelligence of God that is somehow manifest in this world of limitation. You get this infinite limitless God, but we are to believe that there's something of him which can be known finitely, manifested in, you know, this limited and finite world that we can somehow garner some little bit of understanding and gain a little bit of insight into the, the, the infinite supreme being who is all that is, was, and will be right. Right. And that's those themes there. This build, this endeavor to build the temple and to search for the word are what gives masonry its context and almost every degree in masonry, if not all of them. Yeah. Directly or indirectly. Indirectly. Those, those are like your, those your boundaries, your guardrails, right? So if you start they going are. way outside of that context, then you're probably not talking about Freemasonry anymore. You're talking about maybe some other cool stuff, Bingo. but it's not in the the bubble of Freemasonry. Yeah, I like that. That's right. And you that's the, the simplest way I can put that method. It's you, you have to, if you have bad history, you're going to have 
bad ideas about what the pe- these historical people were trying to say, right? You have to know a little bit mm-hmm. about the world, a little bit about history. That's really important. And then you've got you've to be able to take a step back and look at the recurring themes and the recurring repeated things, because obviously they're important. If these things are continuously mentioned, they're contextual. They're important. Uh, and those indeed are the guardrails. People get off into WikiWoo land when they forget about those contexts and those themes, you know. Um, yeah. Well, for example, whenever I meet somebody who, you know, you talk about, they talk about, they get into the Hiramic legend or whatever, and they want to say that Hiram Abiff is a, is a, oh yeah, he represents the sun. He's a solar figure because there's 12 of these guys and, you know, searching for, you know, it's like, okay. And so what? Therefore, right. him being a solar figure, what does that tell you about God and about your relationship to God? And how does that improve your life and make you more virtuous and upright? And how does it improve your dealings with your fellow man and strengthen your kinship and bond of brotherly love, not only with your masons, uh, but all of humanity? Right. And they're like, well, I don't know about that. Okay, also, well, then don't stop there. Then, don't stop there. I'm not saying there isn't maybe some solar symbolism to be found, but that's not the end all. There's something that that too is alluding at, you know, which is what you're going to say. The, save that for the St. John's conversation. Yes. The what? There's also the question of <laughs> Joe was being smug. Um, oh, I didn't hear I said, what you said. I'm, I'm half deaf, though. <laughs> What loud music? Yeah, no. Uh, it's it's also the question of okay, where is your corroborating evidence? Like I, you know, the historian in me wants to look at the span of historical sources, and the fact of the matter is, you know, once we once we get past you know a couple hundred years you kind of have to rely on the sources you have. And that's even not an exact science. And so if someone's right. just like, well, you know, I think, you know, I think the sprig of acacia means this to me because that's just the way it means to me. Well, because okay, I feel it, but yeah, that's what I feel. Well, I feel that. I, I think like Masonic rituals should be like one big Wikipedia article. Like you need to cite your sources. You know, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, t- yeah. tell me where you got that from. You know, nobody, nobody in, in Masonry cites sources anymore. I mean, that's, <laughs> that's it's one of the things. Um, yeah. I mean, even one of, you know, one of the a, a great writer. I love the guy Pierce Vaughn, right? Like his one of his uh, Renaissance Man of Mason book, um, at least in the beginning of the book, he puts in his forward like for my academic friends, of which there are many. Please forgive me. I did not cite or do a bibliography, <laughs> you know, and it was kind of funny. Yeah. But, but going well, back to what Joseph Taylor Newton did, didn't cite things super well, you know. Neither right. did Albert well, Pike until De Hoyos came nobody, around. <laughs> right. Back, yeah. it, it took De Hoyos to cite that Albert Pike took it from um, someone else uh, who didn't. Levi or whatever. Yeah, Elias yeah, so, Levi. So, but what what Taylor, what you were saying, right, is like, yeah, maybe there's some solar symbolism, but why did you just stop there? Are you just all about like trying to wow an audience to a point where they're like, oh my God, you're like some magus, 
tell us more. And I'm like, yeah. well, I could, but I can't because I'm AE weight, uh, you know, in my second <laughs> life. Right. It's, right. it's so ridiculous. <laughs> and it's what I call pop culture esotericists. These guys who come mm. on and they like drop like some stupid meme with some out of context quote. And it's just like, dude, you don't know anything about what that means at all. And you're sitting here just like, bringing your entire audience people who follow you people who love you exactly illuminati confirmed people who love you um and they're just going down the rabbit hole and yeah. and, and the, it, there's no rabbit hole to be going down because like all you did was go uh i mean okay perfect example if you said something like uh there's a great documentary out there about uh, matriarchal times in ancient egypt and the pyramids being used as sound chambers that's awesome. Cool. But if you're going to like point to that or something in masonry or whatever, tell me why that matters. You know, why it's I'll relevant. Never forget. Yeah. Yeah. It, it has to be relevant. It has to, there has to be a practical value. Just like if you took the, the, the words from our ritual and you broke it down to say what those words meant at the time that they were written, what does that mean for you today? And there's a clear messaging there. Yeah, great yeah, book. That's a good book, by the way. Yeah, Mason so I, by Robert Davis. Book. Great book. So this this is where yeah, like the practical aspect of this comes in, right? So you know, words mean things, and if you start yeah. with an actual analysis of where the words came from, this is like book number one you got to get uh, from a Masonic context, right? Because uh, Robert Davis does a great job walking through the history of where pieces of the ritual came from, how they got assembled and like these Lego bricks over time to build what we have today. Also, uh, you know, like this is just, this is my mental model of how, when I hear something Masonic, where do I go? Right? So one step one, like got to know this book, you got to know um, the Mason's words. And after that, it's like a Google search away. Cause there's, there's phrases you can, you can search that um, will get you different results because there's a lot of biblical text in there, right? So like if there's, let's just say there's a hypothetical prayer at a grave, if you take a couple clips out of that, you're going to find that in the book of Job, right? If you take a couple other things, you're going to find um, some of these uh, things come from old sermons uh, back, you know, in the 1700s. So that's that helps like you place where these things came from now of course you're going to interpret these through a modern lens you're going to have you know two centuries three centuries of time and, and evolution that's going to put a different spin on it but that's if you're not careful about your bias you can certainly spin that again you you've, you've heard me talk about uh you know uh faith hope and charity not faith hope and love because you know charity means something different than the modern version uh, of charity and giving right there's actually you know caritas or or, or agape agape right yeah mm -hmm. oh. yeah man well confirmation bias is a hell of a drug <laughs> 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 you know? I, I think we need uh, that on a t-shirt your face yeah, like really a, like, like a stamp like a stamp filter <laughs> and it just says confirmation confirmation bias is a hell of a drug that's what we're gonna we're gonna make those yeah. <laughs> yeah wait for the next sticker mule deal. That's, 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 your new, this message. So. that's your new merch right there. <laughs> hey, I need some new merch ideas anyway. That would be I don't know how well that would sell at shows, but um <laughs> but it's true though, man. You know, and I think I think you can esoteric. 
<laughs> so yeah, very cool shirt there. Um, but I think it's, you know, another thing that's important is to realize that not only has masonry changed over time, it's not been a static thing. It's been a gradual deepening thing. But it, but if you pay attention, it has deepened in context. It hasn't really gotten away from it. The whole allegorical endeavor to build the temple and, and discover the word holds true all the way through the capitular degrees and into the cryptic degrees. Uh, you know, the, the Scottish rite, um, at least in the southern jurisdiction, is beautifully coherent in that regard. Um, all from start to finish. I mean, well, I say finish. I haven't seen the 33rd degree, but all the way to the 32nd, beautifully coherent, uh, incredibly uh, every single degree deals with that, whether directly or indirectly, pretty much. Um, you know, and I think it's also important to realize, too, that masonry, not only changing over time, took on kind of distinctly different flavors in different places. So it's important to know a little bit of English history and to see how the politics and climate of England affected masonry there. But you look at what it did in France. You know, you'll notice that English masonry to this very day is a little softer, a little more palatable. It's not so poignant. It's uh, kind of cool with the monarchy. So cool with it. Uh, it's not nearly they, as political as American masonry. Right. Or French masonry. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. They look, I mean, look, for the past however long, the United Grand Lodge of England has always had a royal so-and-so as one of its grand poobahs. Right. And it's kind so of like, uh, I, yeah. Exactly. And I feel like that's kind of a political statement. It's kind of them saying, hey, guys, no need to worry about us over here. We're not challenging your status quo at all. Matter we're fact, totally, we're like totally cool with the crown. Totes. Right. <laughs> but France, on uh, French masonry has an altogether quite different attitude uh, where the message is not only to build the temple and search for the word, but part of this building the temple or holy, holy the, the holy royal empire of humanity and of masonry in this building a better world of liberty and equality and fraternity for humanity requires you to hunt down and stomp out the three primordial enemies of mankind of tyranny, falsehood and ignorance or uh, evil ambition, superstition and barbarism, right? Or, and so on. And that's a big part of it. Well right? said. By finding those enemies in yourself, but also in the world at large and dealing with them so far as you can deal with them. As a that's a, a a quite different blatant message than what the English uh, craft has to say, and that's not to say that it can't be seen in there. I think that those connotations are hidden in, in the American Preston Web masonry as well as English uh, rituals. But the French make no bones about it. French right and the Southern jurisdiction Scottish right is quite in your face with that stuff, and I appreciate it. <laughs> you know, and I think that's part of the problem with the Preston Web. You know, there's a lot more confusion. Um, well, so in the, in the Scottish Rite, especially if you're so blessed to have good access to the rituals and you're able to really become familiar, intimately familiar with even the Entered Apprentice all the way to the 32nd degree and all of the ones in between to really, really know them and study them. It's, it creates a really beautiful, clear, coherent picture that's very pedagogical. And these degrees really speak for themselves. You don't need to run trying to figure out what this stuff means. The degrees tell you what they mean. They do. True. The lectures are very, they tell you exactly what they mean. But you go, you look at the York Rite, uh, and it is not that way. The lectures that they give you and the explanations for, are often vapid or insipid. You know, uh, you, those of you who are Royal Archmasons, think about the explanation given for the four banners in the chapter, in the opening ceremony. 
you know there's some deep stuff going on there with the lion, the ox, and the eagle, and the man, and their respective colors. They're hinting at something, alluding to the nature of God in this word, but the explanations they give you are like, okay, you basically gave us, you told us that red and blue make purple. All right. Very surface level. Right, right. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and uh, it. the more I think about that kind of stuff, the more I realize Pike, when he said that there's never been a sorry, sadder state than the Prestons and the Webbs who never correctly interpreted a single Masonic symbol. I think that whenever, you know, Preston and that should Webb go on the back of your T-shirt. Well, <laughs> man, I think a lot of those guys. I think when they when they were trying to promulgate Masonry in this country, uh, and they came upon a symbol that they didn't understand, they just pulled something out of their ass and said, "Well, this will work." Well, it's just you know, I don't know what this means, but we better just say something rather than have nothing and they thought something would be better than nothing i think that nothing would have been better than something stupid you know and i kind of think that was pike's opinion too um and and now i'm starting to see that for a while i was wondering why pike was so harsh on preston and webb but the more i study the two rights the scottish right and the york right and the, the more i see the big disparity of clarity right scottish right super clear super coherent and then the york right is this this kind of like random hodgepodge of degrees that were assembled together with virtually no clear explanations of anything that's that leaves you to pontificate and speculate and try to figure stuff out for yourself and it gives you no choice but to go outside of masonry and study historical stuff read other literature other mystical literature study cabal you know kabbalah whatever you can do to try to make sense of what you learn in the royal arts degree and the other degrees leading up to it but you're you know the degrees themselves aren't saying all of that outright. You're just kind of, you're like, you're always left to wonder, am I on the right page here? You know, whereas the Scottish right doesn't sort of leave you in the dark in that way. Um, but I think that your, your best hope of having a clear understanding of what the York degrees, Preston Webb blue lodge degrees and the American capitular and cryptic degrees are saying is if you have a solid grasp on the historical stuff that gives it context, and keeping in mind those two guardrails we're talking about, about the allegorical endeavor to build the temple and the search for the word, then you can really start to see some really deep meaning in there. And there's really a lot of really very mystical ideas, um, uh, very profound stuff. Uh, so with like the last like five, five minutes or so before we wrap up, you know, how would you, how would you summarize this uh, to either a brand new Mason or someone who's really trying to reevaluate uh, how they've been, you know, interpreting their Masonic journey along the way. How, what would you, you know, how, how would you package this up? Joe, you got a, you got a thought on I was, that? No, I was going to say perfect, perfect scenario. Mm-hmm. Guy just got raised. Mm-hmm. You're there that night. He's super thirsty for knowledge. Wants to know more, you know, all the hugging and the kissing and the patting on the back is done. Where do you lead him? That's a well, good question. So what I've been doing, you know, I, it's tough, you know, because we would love to believe that everybody who comes and gets initiated and passed and raised has had a decent education, you know, something True. about the world, you know, that's but that's often point. not the case. So you have to, you know, you have to sometimes make up for a great, uh, lack in education but well to that point i mean even when we had the uh, seven liberal arts and sciences that was kind of assumed that was covered in grade school and so yes. it was really kind of like you already know about these so now we're going to put a masonic 
ribbon on top of it. And yet now, here we go with a generation that's not taught in schools, and they're like, oh. Uh, You'd be surprised how many people don't know, like, how many adult people, 30-year-old people, mm-hmm. you know, don't know what the Protestant Reformation was, mm. you know, and how that affected Europe, how that affected England, mm-hmm. um, what, how the Anglican Church was formed, and how that affected politics. They don't know anything about the Stuarts, and the, you know, it's like, well, that stuff's really important. They're the really important bits More of wives, that, that have far-reaching effects. Hmm? More, More wives. wives. More wives, please. Oh, yeah, sure. But, uh, All right, back, to, back to the new guy. Know. New guy yeah, comes up so to you and says, guy, where do I go? You, you have to try to assess what he knows. you got to assess his under his general education. But beyond that, at least point him to something that that centers him and grounds him in, okay, look. There's always more to be known. And there's always there's always going to be some stuff we just don't know and don't have all the answers to, and that's okay. It's better to say, I don't know what this means yet, than to come up with some bullshit as to what you think it means. Right? Um and just go ahead and, you know, point him to something that's sound, like maybe The Builders by Joseph Fort Newton is one of my first suggestions to people. It's a great book. It's it keeps in context this allegorical endeavor to build the temple and for not that is not only you but humanity as a whole it's very he he uses beautiful and eloquent rhetoric in all of his lectures and all of his little short talks and everything talking about this quest to know god and how um in a humble kind of way and 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 humble humbly reminding the mason that that you can't have a monopoly on god you know i think that joseph fort newton is so so was so gifted at being able to keep you centered in this reality of what masonry is really getting at. I think that's the best starting point. And then just have conversations. You, the best Masonic education is not done standing behind a pulpit in front of your lodge. It's not, it's done one-on-one. You take that newly raised Mason, go sit down with him and have lunch and ask him, Hey, you know, what do you so far? What do you, what, and make him answer the questions. Why do you think this is here? Start planting seeds in his mind that everything in the room and everything that happens in Mason, everything that's said and done is a question extractor. And you start kind of extracting these questions or helping him to see that these are questions that need to be asked. Don't spoon feed him the answers, but mm-hmm. try to get him to think about this stuff. Get him thinking about these historical contexts and these two parallel allegorical themes and let him build up the strength and put his own tools to use to interpret that stuff. And then he'll become a a more independent thinker as a result. And that's really what masonry is trying to do, trying to make him more independent, free thinking, more generally charitable, positive, tolerant, loving, kind human being. You know, you can't just make that happen to somebody in an evening, you know, but you can sort of help guide them on that road and help them to Help them find the right questions, right? I don't think, you know, right. it's not so much about giving them the answers, but make sure they're asking the right questions, if that makes any sense. It makes perfect sense. All right. Well, thank you for that. Uh, let's go around for final thoughts. We'll start with uh, Robert, and we'll save Taylor for last. And uh, Robert, the question of the night is, uh, is there anything that you would add or, or change to, you know, a, a good, solid approach for Masonic exegesis for a, a new member or a member thirsty for knowledge. Yeah, there's just a few things. And I think, uh, first of all, I have to say um, what Taylor just said, like that, like take the last two and a half minutes, if you're all out there on YouTube listening, 
uh, go to whatever illegal downloader and uh, rip this episode and take that last two minutes and, and, and I don't know, put it in your phone as like something to listen to as maybe something that is a reminder because I thought that was like, I'm look, Taylor and I have had differences of opinion, but that was almost perfect. I really think uh, you summed it up so well. But in far as far as exegesis goes, you yeah of course uh, you can see I don't know, I don't know how to do this it's all mirrored all these books like over here on this midsection it's all Mackey like you can't look at that and then and then say oh what well, says it in this book too and then like you know they're both Mackey right make sure your sources are different make sure you're looking at the historical context look mm -hmm. at something called like an etymology dictionary to see when a word entered the vernacular of the day um, and see how they tended to use those words and uh, i think you'll find that most of the concepts that that masonry is promoting are concepts that um, I, I would have, and I'm just going to throw it out there. I think they're concepts that uh, a good subset of certain political ideology, uh, people who follow certain political ideologies, would be against. Um, oh, yeah. It's just, it's a very, you know, it's really funny. I think uh, down in Louisiana, you guys have some some word about no libertines or something, and. Mm -hmm. <laughs> It's kind of interesting because mm -hmm. masonry in and of itself is a little bit libertine. And, and also remember that religious libertines. Yeah, right. Yeah, irreligious um, libertines, yeah. Okay, yeah, so you're going to put them together, I guess. But um, remember also that exegesis is something that's always like in light of itself. Um, yeah. What does, what does something say in light of all of the rest of the things that the things have to say about the thing, right? Like it's a big ball. You have to enter into the like world of masonry. What does it say? What do they want? But masonry is also that thing that's, uh, you know, goes beyond masonry. It is uh, something that helped form ideas of freedom and et cetera, et cetera. And it just kind of expands out into uh, communities and societies. So uh, awesome episode. Loved listening to you guys. Yeah. This was great. Awesome. All right, Jason, what would you add or, or change to the concept of Masonic exegesis? So I would, I would just double down on the idea that it's, it's not enough to look at the words, but you must look at the words with context and within the context in which they were written, because then that gives you invaluable insights into, um, why the words were written the way they were. Um, when I talk about, when I talk through like my Noah presentation and I'm comparing the three different stages of Sumerian flood mythology, you know, I, I make, take special care to talk about the context within which those three uh mythologies were written because based on the details of the story you can trace the evolution of ancient sumer from a nomadic um society up through an agrarian religious kind of pinnacle of of civilization um just by looking at what they include or don't include 
in their fundamental creation mythologies. And so it's, it's important mm-hmm. to do the same thing with Masonic contexts. Yeah. I think I'll, in a nutshell, man, it's like you just, you got to know or as best you can. And sometimes we don't know, but who wrote it? Why did they write it? Mm-hmm. Who were they writing it to? And if you can know those few things, you know, who... Who wrote it? When did they write it? Why did why did they write it? And who did they write it to? If you can figure that out, you're in good shape. A lot of times we don't have all those answers, and that's what makes so makes masonry so tricky. And I think a lot of people are hasty to pretend like they have those answers mm-hmm. when they don't. Good point. You know, and that causes a lot of problems. And some people do that to sell books. <laughs> that is true. <laughs> all right, Joe. What about you? What do you think? Speaking of, uh, please buy my new book. That I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, Yes. Masonic Exegesis by Joe. <laughs> Masonic Exegesis with Context by Joe. Um, no, uh, tonight was awesome. Um, and, Exegesising and I better exegesisers. With, with Brother Joe. Exegeting, um, maybe? <laughs> ex- no, you save that for later, young man. Okay, there'll be none of that. So, um, <laughs> uh, Brother Taylor, it was absolutely awesome having you on. Um, I think I've even... Uh, had some some civil discourse with with Taylor on the winding stairs, um, but he is enlightened. Um, he is a fantastic speaker, uh, and he is a uh, just as good writer. So I always love seeing his, his context and his commentary. But uh, and I wouldn't add much to to what he said tonight. I think that what we've been trying to say tonight is that exegesis is interpretation of text, but it's not interpretation of text. Uh, in a vacuum, right? It comes with, uh, and when we're talking about Masonic ritual and Masonic writings and things like that, it all comes with with context, right? It's the word exegesis, 90% of the time, it has to do with biblical exegesis, right? When you're talking about scriptures. Um, but that same uh, methodology applies for, for our craft, right? You have to look at, just like Taylor said, when it was written, why it was written, who it was written for, who was that audience, and what did it mean to them at the time? Because you can still find that meaning three or four or five hundred years later, so you know, look at things with a critical eye and don't take things at face value, and you'll get a, a deeper and more personal experience out of masonry uh, than you would you would by by not doing that. So that's all I got. Love y'all. Merry Christmas. Happy Hanukkah. Uh, happy Yalda for those who celebrated last night. And uh, peace. Woo. All right. Over to you, Taylor, and then I'll wrap things up so any final thoughts on this whole concept oh no i think it's a concept that you could go you could talk (laughs) about this for hours and hours and hours truly um you know especially if you want to get into specifics although it'd be hard to do that and keep it um keep it internet friendly you know Uh, it's hard to really delve more into it than we have without getting into ritual specifics which we can't do here but um you know this applies to beyond masonry you know like brother martinez brought up same stuff applies to reading the Bible. And I like to believe that's one of the yes. reasons Masonry gives you the Bible. I think Masonry gives you the book, the same book you took your obligation on in hopes that you'll go back and revisit it with new eyes, Masonic eyes, eyes capable of taking things figuratively and seeing, being able to see past a symbol to that which it was intended to symbolize, perhaps. Boom. And maybe you'll see more depth there than you had previously known was there. Um Maybe you'll trade a more naive and childish faith that you once had for a more adult one, uh, possibly, you know, and I think that's maybe one of the things that masonry is intending to do for a man 
So that's one closing thought I would have. And, uh, and, and even take the same approach to music, you know, don't treat music. I mean, I'm as a professional musician, as a singer songwriter, um, there's so much more to music than entertainment, you know, and when a songwriter, especially when you're dealing with great songwriters, like, well, like somebody like Bob Dylan or Leonard Cohen, there's so much metaphor and symbolism in their songs. And you have to perform a bit of exegesis with that. You got to have a hermeneutic. You've got to have a method of, of getting to the root of what they're saying, re, you know, what they're really getting at. Otherwise it's usually whew, over your head and you're missing out on some, some really profound stuff. So it is with masonry. So it is with religious literature. And so it is with music. So it is with movies. There's great movies like that, like life of pie. I won't get into it, but that's an allegorical movie. And if you don't know at least a, a little bit about exegesis or you're not going to get all there is to get out of that movie or even, uh, Oh brother, where art thou? You know, which is an old mm -hmm. story by Homer made over. All right. Excellent. So that's all I had to say. Just no, to that was great. And I, I totally agree. We could, we could talk for hours about it, but I want to thank you very much for your time and, and, and effort being on the show. I know you're on the road and I appreciate you, you dialing in and uh, sharing your, your knowledge with us because uh, you certainly are um, a well well read scholar and I and I appreciate uh, your your unique view on Freemasonry. So thank you. Thanks for having me. I appreciate you. Let me join you guys for an evening. We'll do this again. We'll do this again sometime. Maybe in twenty twenty three. Awesome. I'm so um, yes, for my thoughts again, I, I'm much more of a pragmatic you know structure kind of guy i like to say well you know i'd start with this book and i'd start i'd go to Mackey's encyclopedia see what he has to says, say about it you know look at a couple other masonic encyclopedias uh try to compare and contrast like like uh, robert said get a different view of what i've heard see you know try to understand how it was written where it was written um to taylor's point and then then try to assemble um, some more modern meeting on top of that, right? To, to, to really what was, uh, Taylor's kind of opening statement is the, then the, so what, right? What is, okay. You find out that this symbol means this. So what, what does that mean to you now that you understand where it came from? Um, it's great to know the source. It's great to know the context, great to know the symbolism, but then at the end of the day, you still have to apply it to make yourself a better, better person. So, uh, that's, that's the end goal, right? That's why we're here. Um, but, but do it with care and make sure that, uh, you know, you're also passing on that knowledge to the next generation of Masons coming in, no matter how young or how old. So with that, this is the last Masonic Roundtable of 2022. We're going to take a break off next week. And so that'll be fun. Um, and we'll see you in 2023. But stick around for this channel. Actually, in the next 10 minutes or so, we'll switch over to, again, that new series we're kicking off, uh, looking at the analysis of Disney Plus's new show, National Treasure. And so um, stick around while we deconstruct the, the last two episodes. So uh, we'll see you over there. And have a great holiday season. And we will see you next year. Thank you very much for watching and keep searching for more light. Have a good night. Wow.